Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey. So as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised... Press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. So what did we watch today, Anya? We watched Beware of Ladies. It's a 1936 picture from Irvin Pitchell starring <laughs> Donald Cook, Judith Allen, and George Meeker. And some guy from Dracula. Um, Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry. Mr. Renfield himself. And um, so what caught our fancy about this? Well, I think we... Uh, I think we, as a couple, maybe thought that it might reflect some of our story. I think we, as a couple, need to refine our uh, film selection process. Well, when you say a brassy broad who's a reporter for a a, a paper, uh, you know, tries to tries to insert herself into the life of a you know integrity obsessed nerdy lawyer, I, you know that. That's pretty appealing. That sounds like us. 
So I, I guess we should discuss this and maybe figure out together whether or not this film accurately reflected the Anya Kane, Kevin Greenlee tale. And maybe like whether or not we should get our heads checked out. <laughs> <laughs> Beware of ladies. God. Just, it sounds like, it's weirdly enough, like it's sexist, but like it's nowhere near as sexist as I thought it was going to be. I'm just going to say that. Like, you know what I mean? I was expecting like a shit storm and I feel like we've watched other Movies that were more sexist than this. You know, I'm, I'm going to say it. I almost was hoping it'd be more sexist because then it'd be more entertaining. <laughs> I was hoping it would be more sexist. Dash Kevin Greenlee. <laughs> that's going to be your epitaph. <laughs> that's just, that's just... how you watch all movies. You're like, you know, that was pretty good, but I wish it was a little bit more sexist. <laughs> Incel Kevin just, Greenlee. The movie needed something because... It was a bit on the dull side. It decidedly lacked pizzazz. <laughs> I would say that. So it wasn't just that it was bad. It was uh, unentertaining. It was boring. Yeah. Uh, it was tedious. Uh, it was a waste of our time. Throw in a bunch of misogyny and it would have been a barrel of laughs. <laughs> it would have been something. You would have been, uh, been chuckling. You would have been belly laughing. It would have been... Much better. If, if there was chauvinism and sexism, I would have been outraged, but at least I would have been engaged. You would have been feeling something inside. <laughs> uh, okay, so we we start off on some really cheesy opening credits uh, that don't really play out in the film, I'll just say. But it's it's a bunch of silhouettes of women chasing a silhouette of a man whose hat is falling off his head, aka the Kevin Greenlee story. <laughs> You had such high hopes at this point. I had such high hopes. I was like, oh, the ladies are going to be chasing the guy. And then we're going to have a mystery because this is listed as a crime film everywhere. That's why we watch the fucking thing. You know, spoiler alert. There's not much crime. There's not much of anything. You got excited, too, because you saw a familiar face in the crowd. As I mentioned before, uh, Dwight Fry is in this picture. He is perhaps best known for playing Renfield in the uh, 1931 version of dracula it was in 1931 I, I don't you're asking the wrong person <laughs> you can look it up <laughs> uh he gave a very memorable uh performance in that film he's the guy who wants to eat all the flies and so i was i was thinking wow wow they got him <laughs> they wow get... what a catch for this movie in 1931 uh yeah i i was thinking uh that's an interesting performer. He played an interesting character in Dracula. Surely he'll play an interesting character in this picture. I'm, I'm in for a wild ride. You naive, bumbling fool. <laughs> Jeez. So uh, it starts in at the Daily News. A, uh, I, I don't know if this is set in New York. I don't know where it's set. It just feels like it's set in, in, in some sort of like strange, boring alternate universe. But, you know, Daily News is a New York tabloid. And um, basically, this newspaper has a huge hard on for a guy named uh, a guy who is named George Martin, <laughs> the famed producer of the Beatles. <laughs> he's ditched the four fabulous lads from Liverpool, and he's coming to America to run for DA, and he's gonna clean this city up, Kevin, because this uh, this this town is uh, beleaguered by an evil racket run by a crime boss named Williams who has the DA in his pocket, but Martin... And oddly enough, mm. pardon me for interrupting yeah, your... I'm your, sorry. Uh, Do you feel like you need to clean up my act? <laughs> Just like Martin's going to clean up the city? So George Martin, the producer of the Beatles music, 
is running for office against John Williams, the well-known <laughs> film composer. <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to point that out. I didn't even make that connection. <laughs> the, the so it's like two styles of music up against each other. Yeah. <laughs> George Martin wants to bring more of an album, you know, sensibility to the town. And John Williams really wants to keep it all as <laughs> incidental music. John Williams has a big brassy uh, style in this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that. The battle of the uh, the music. Musical. Battle of the bands. Yeah, battle of the bands. And what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to, you know, set up. Uh, each one of them has to pick a group of uh, scrappy kids to sing. In the competition, and whoever wins, that's how they—that's uh, how they determine who will be the DA. As yeah. in most towns. Yeah, I wish. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Delaney's shaking her head. She's not bemused by any of this. Um, she puts up with a lot. She puts up with a lot as our dog. And so the paper is running really uh, tedious headlines about this race. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first headline is. George Martin nominated for district attorney on nonpartisan ticket. And this is like this huge screaming uh, headline. It's, a, it's the main story. I mean, God, zip, pep, pep it up. Pep it up a little bit. Game of Thrones. George Martin uh, scrambles for power in corrupt city. I mean, now. Oh, they're going to pep it up. Now we're, now we're, worry. we're switching George Martin jokes now. <laughs> it's going to be back and forth the whole time. So just buckle yourselves in. But yeah, they, they really love this guy. They're acting like they're pulling all these cheap tricks to make him popular in the newspapers, but then they can't even write a goddamn headline. So think of it as like maybe uh, like the One America Network, which mm. is a very partisan mm -hmm. sub sub Fox News yeah. sort of thing. So Fox this, News is lame younger brother. So this is a very partisan news operation is not very good at it. No, they suck at it. They're like, oh, we want him to be like a Horatio Alger type and... The, the you know the editor saying if one of the reporters doesn't dig up a big scandal on the opposition side, you know he'll know he's in a gin, gin what was it, a gin mill, whatever. <laughs> and you know, and I was excited at this point though because it was a sassy, annoyed editor, just like all editors. Well, except for, except for the ones you work for. I don't work for annoyed editors. Your editors are uh, princes among men. And oh, yeah. No, I love my editors. I have great editors. I've never had an editor that was yelling at me. But I think in, when I was editor of my college paper, I did devolve into something of a caricature where I, I think I was kind of a cigar chomping, yelling at people to get me pictures of Spider-Man kind of attitude. And I'd be walking yeah. around grousing. I mean, I, I think I understand. Why, why do you use the past tense? What do you mean? You say when you were an editor. You were kind of a cigar-chomping, grousing character. What do you mean? Now, <laughs> Kevin Greenlee, I am I am a delight. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's, I'm sorry. that's the response. I'm sorry, Chief. I don't, yeah, you don't call me Chief. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm a delightful, mild-mannered reporter. That's what I am now. But back in the day, I was an angry, bitter editor who was, like, just yelling at everybody in the newsroom. I'm sure people thought I was horrible. It, it, <laughs> I'm sure they watch movies like this and they're like, that was like the woman I worked for in college. <laughs> so I feel like I, I'm, I feel seen by movies like this in a certain way. So this editor decides that the ideal reporter to cover the contest between the film composer 
And the Beatles producer is, of course, beloved character actress, comedian, Betty White. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so crazy. They they picked so many just generic names just to be generic, and they ended up being, like, three famous people. <laughs> and he, he can't find Betty White. No, Betty White's she, gone. She's, she's out in a shoot. <laughs> well, it turns out that he can't find her because she's busy leaving her husband. Because he doesn't support her Golden Girls career. <laughs> She's leaving her husband. He's a total bum. His name's Fred White. Is there any famous Fred White? Yeah, I can't think of one. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look it up. I'm sure there is Fred White. It's gonna be like some like mass murderer or something. Why couldn't it have been like Walter? Oh, okay, okay. Fred Frederick G. White was a famous American lawman and the first town marshal of the booming. Boomtown of Tombstone. He was also, I, I think this is the one we should go with, if you if you bear with me. Fred White was, a, still is, an American drummer who was affiliated with the musical <gasps> aggregation Earth, Wind, and Fire. Love them. So we got we to gotta stick with the, uh, the music theme. I dig this. I dig this. It's basically Battle of the Bands, the film. And that would have been so much more interesting if you had like... The Beatles producer versus the famous uh, film composer versus uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I mean, that would have been that would have been rocking. Uh, it would have been something. <laughs> yeah, it would have been giving us something to work with. Um, so she's dumping this guy because he's cheating on her, and he threatens suicide, and he's just gross. And she's just like, this is when the movie still had promise. So I'm kind of sad reading about this, you know reading my notes from back when I was so naive and I thought this was going somewhere. But she, you know, he's like, I'm going to kill myself if you leave. And she's like, good, the pills are on the first shelf. And I'm like, oh, I love her. Like, <laughs> she doesn't give a shit, you know. And he, he's a whiny loser and he's all like, oh, you know, like you just blah, blah, blah. And she's just, she's getting out of there. She's bouncing. So and that's pretty much the scene. And, you know, already this may be some problems because it's kind of like the, 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 the you know, the, it, I don't know how to describe this. The film just looks fuzzy. Like everything blends in together. Characters start blending in together. Scenes and sets start blending in together. There's not a lot distinctive except for this woman's hats. This woman wears a variety of fascinating hats in this movie. And the first hat she wears kind of uh, is tilted down on one side, kind of maybe they're going for a Veronica Lake hair type effect. But because the people lighting the film don't really understand what they're doing, <laughs> and she's wearing this hat, like 90% of the time when she's on scene with this particular hat, it looks like she has a black eye. It's a hat-tastrophe. At this point, should we discuss some of her other hats, or should we save that? Uh, keep, so people keep listening for that, that yeah, big people, hat yeah. action. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to jump the gun with the hat action. You know, do you think you'll remember to talk about it later on, or will you become so consumed by despair? Talking I mean, let's about let's this? go ahead and talk about it. There's another yeah. hat, uh, which to me, uh, she had something long and elongated stuck through it, and it looked yeah. to me like she'd been shot with an arrow. Yeah, it looked like a pin or or an arrow in like some medieval battle. Uh, there was one hat. It looked like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, sometimes I'd go to like revolutionary war type museums and stuff, and they would sell at the gift shops 
uh, novelty pins with comically large feathers. Mm, quills. Or quills, if you will. <laughs> and it looked like she had a comically large quill stuck in her hat. What are some of the other hats? I don't really... There were there were a lot of them, and, and she wore them constantly. And, you know, I feel like some thought was put into the hats. They were distinctive. They helped me remind me who she was. Like, to be honest, like... I'm I'm sitting a little bit far from the TV, and I have very bad eyesight. So, and I need to get glasses. But sometimes, like, I can't really recognize who's who. Are you saying you got faulty peepers? Yeah, faulty peepers. Unfortunately, so when a character's wearing a big rowdy hat, and 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 you know that helps me keep track of things. So I appreciated that because in the men's side of things, everybody's wearing the same goddamn suit. Everybody has dark hair. Everybody looks the same to me. In, in this picture, if you work as an attorney, if you work uh, as a reporter, if you work as a, an attorney who's pretending to be an attorney because you're actually a shady private investigator, if you work as a corrupt racketeer, if you work, no matter what you work or, or what you do for your living, you're, you all dress the same. Everybody, no matter what your job is, you wear kind of a really cheap shitty looking suit yep <laughs> it's the uniform of this town it's a racket but it's uh it's yeah and and i just want to say this movie aside from the hats which were maybe kind of a bright spot in this film in some sense because they were distinctive they were unique they made us look twice they made us say was she just shot with an arrow what has what is happening in this scene but the rest of the movie really made me appreciate the work that people behind the scenes in films do uh the the, the people who are in charge of wardrobe, the people who are in charge of props, the people who are in charge of lighting, the people who are in charge of, you know, making sure the set is all already and distinctive and interesting, the people who are in charge of selecting locations where you shoot. Because the absence of that in this movie really made it so that it wasn't just that it was kind of a boring movie, but it was like you're we were moving through different planes of space where everything was sort of dull and blank and we were basically in the same room over and over again. It was hard to understand time passing. It was hard to understand spatial changes because everything, it looked like they just kind of redid the room several different ways and shot it that way. Yeah, the film had no budget. The film had no budget. And they didn't try to like make the set look that different. Like how hard is it to just I don't know, get some plants in there or get, get, get some different kinds of furniture. I mean, geez. They didn't try. <sighs> no. That's all you need. Well, to be honest, one reason the film seemed longer to us than perhaps it should have is because the film's like an hour long. I think we spent another hour or so, you know, stopping the film, asking each other what was happening. <laughs> Uh, I, I know I often ask you, are you sure you want to keep watching this? Yeah, there were a lot of, lot, of, lot of consoles and debates, and, you know, maybe I made the wrong choice by sticking it out. <laughs> well, we weren't even sure if we could talk about the film on the podcast at first because it took so long for any sort of noirish mystery to start happening. And this film is trying to be a rom-com. It's trying to be, like, kind of a zany scheme film, zany, like, crime film. Pick a lane. It's trying to be a bit of a noir at that point, a murder mystery. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's wait. Yeah, pick a lane, pick a goddamn fuck. Just tell a story. I guess just tell a story. You know, I thought the, the story had kind of potential. It sounded kind of cute, but it didn't, it didn't sell. 
So if you go back in time and you're really bad on hard on your luck, everything goes wrong, and all you can do to make a living is to be the script doctor for Beware of Ladies. What lane would you have picked? How would you have fixed this? I would have. I would have like. What do people care about? You know, th- think about it that way. What do people care about? If it's a story about a brassy uh, lady reporter trying to make a uh, an, a DA candidate, you know, appeal appeal to the women's vote, you know, maybe just lean into that concept. You know, like maybe just go with go. that. And they fall in love. And maybe there's a mystery element. Maybe there's a mystery element. Maybe somebody's trying to sabotage them and she's also having to put her investigative hat on. You know, maybe that's the one with the needle through it. (laughs) And she's having to go and figure out, okay, I want this guy to win, but also what's happening. And, And she's juggling those two things and also maybe falling in love with him. So I think you can do different genres, but this film would like take five hours to like, let's go see what the bad guys are doing. Oh, nothing interesting. Okay, let's go back to the editor. He's just ranting in the room for some reason. Like, it, just focus on the main characters and tell their story, and and you're fine. Uh, as a viewer, I don't really enjoy it in movies when there's a story about a political campaign, and they do it in such a way as that one side is completely good and the other side is completely evil. Like it's always in an old movie. There's a political campaign. One guy wants to clean up the rackets. And the other guy he's running against is a racketeer. That yeah. that makes things too simplistic, too black and white. And uh, I I think I would have preferred if it was just running against a regular or maybe, politician. Or why not just make it that she's re- doing reports on the DA because his office is set, trying to make him more appealing. Because you know what for whatever reason, and then she helps solve a mystery. Like why not? Like why does it have to be a political race at all? Yeah, and actually, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because her job. Well, why don't we we, we talk about this? Oh yeah, thing. and I also would have made her a better reporter because what she basically is doing is PR here. She's doing public relations. So why don't we discuss the scene where her editor? Yeah. So she leaves her husband. She goes into work, and her editor gives her an assignment. Tell us about that sequence. Uh yeah. So the editor says that they are going to. Basically, get this guy elected. Get this George Martin elected. They didn't care for John Williams' work in Star Wars or anything like that. So they need some, and they need a new sound for the city. So they um, are going to just run, you know, flattering articles in the paper the whole time. And she's, Betty White is a crucial part of that because Betty White is going to follow him around, embed in the campaign, and write articles that are going to make him appeal to the women vote. And that's going to be all bullshit fluff, kissing babies, yada, yada, yada. Um, and so she's basically told to do like press relations for him and public relations for him. And may- maybe it would have been better had she not been a reporter, but had been a former reporter hired on to do PR for the candidate. That would have been better. That would have made it better because she, what she's doing is totally unethical. And maybe this was cool in the 30s. I, I don't know enough about the history of journalism, but it's so egregious and I feel like so many people today don't even understand what journalists do, but like, this ain't it. <laughs> you know, like if you're if you're embedded in someone's campaign and you're reporting on them, you know, you might write a sympathetic profile, but it shouldn't be like with them, you know, in order to benefit. I don't know. It's just, ugh, it's too much. It left a bad taste in the mouth. It did. And she writes, she doesn't, she goes further than just writing positive articles. I was like, that's bad. 
because you know you should you shouldn't be doing that but once she starts writing speeches for him i was like oh girl what the hell come on that's not that's not cool and the movie would have been fine had she just been like some sort of campaign expert hired or like a formal journalist again hired to do writing for the campaign it would have been the same or if she had been a reporter but just covering him honestly that also would have been better uh, and not only does this movie give a bad and inaccurate idea about what reporters do, it kind of gives a bad and inaccurate idea of what attorneys do. Because we, we have a scene that takes place in a lawyer's office, uh, an office which looked remarkably like the newspaper office, uh, where this lawyer uh, is receiving intelligence from his operatives who are apparently just going around town digging up dirt on anybody now, they can think now of. Now, Kevin, this is not this is not the, the good lawyer. This is not George Martin. This is not George Martin. No, this is another man named Randall. <laughs> is that his name? There's also names on his office door, which he apparently uses at times. And those names are not Randall. So is his real name one of the names on the doors? His real name Randall's? His real name something we don't even hear? He's the artist formerly known as Randall. Yeah. I don't know. It, let's just call him Randall because that's what everyone calls him in the movie. So Randall's this guy. Maybe he's a lawyer. Maybe he's just a fake lawyer. He, he likes to gather up dirt on people in town. And then he goes to have lunch with uh, famed composer uh, John Williams. Mm-hmm. And John Williams is reading him the riot act. Yes. He's saying, listen, buddy, I'm going to have my DA. I'm going to have my DA investigate your little racket that you got going here. I know you're one of the most crooked firms in the business. But the reason I haven't, you know, thrown you in jail is because I want you to work for me. And so you are going to dig up some dirt on famed Beatles composer, uh, famed Beatles producer, George Martin. See what he's doing with the lovely lads from Liverpool. And then you're going to, uh, you know, ruin him. And then I will kind of let you stay out of jail. So Randall makes the deal and sets out trying to spy on Martin so they can ruin his campaign. And he has a bit of a, he has a bit of a, uh, you know, spy, if you will, implanted in Martin's campaign. Yes, he implants a, a person who I believe is the heir to the Swanson's chicken fortune, mm -hmm. Dwight Fry. Lots of big, lots of big names in this movie. Lots of big players. That's what keeps it interesting. And Dwight Fry is is just he's there. I mean, well, he he does weirdly enough start the movie out where he's just eating big juicy flies and spiders off his desk, you know, for lunch. But then he puts that away, and he just is kind of just a bad guy in the film. He doesn't. Doesn't give him much to chew on other than the flies and spiders. Uh, that part of the book really freaked me out when I was a kid. I tried to read Dracula way too early, like maybe when I was like 10. I was like, ugh, jeez, and I put it down. <laughs> and then I reread it in high school. I'm like, this is so cool. What did you think of the movie? Oh, Dracula. the Bela Lugosi movie? Yeah. Yeah, I liked it. It's kind of stupid, but Bela Lugosi is really cool. The movie's not very good, I would say, but I would say there's like some great stuff in it. After you just watched... Beware of Ladies. Oh, I mean, it, give it an Oscar compared to <laughs> Beware of Ladies. I just remember the movie, like, watching it being like, ha, ha, ha. And then Bella Lugosi comes out, and you're like, oh, cool. And then, like, he leaves, and you're like, ha, ha, ha. 
So George Martin is portrayed as a very straight shooter. He doesn't want to go around and do a bunch of phony PR bullshit. He doesn't want to talk about how much he loves animals or his wife. He's actually single or how much he loves to kiss babies. Oh, wait a minute. He's single. He's Whoa. single, ladies. That take, might be important later. Take some notes. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Betty White finally shows up to work. And her editor, uh, you know, he, he asks her to do... He asked her to do this this uh, this assignment, but she's really insistent that she needs a vacation, and he's guilting her because he says he nursed her through the bottle stage to where she's almost a good reporter. So she needs to prove it to him, but she doesn't really give a shit. Like you know, he's threatening her, and she's kind of like whatever. She's not interested in this assignment. She's not interested in this. Not because she doesn't want to write puff pieces, but just because she just wants to go to Bermuda. But then things change when he offers her a paid vacation. And she makes him put it in writing. She tells him that she would have taken the assignment anyway because he's a sucker. So I was like, I'm here for this kind of newsroom bullshit. Like, I'm here for that. But we don't really get much of it in the film, unfortunately. Um, so is it customary in the media world? Uh, if you get an assignment that you're not really thrilled about, your editor will give you a free vacation if you take it. Oh, yeah. That's what. Yeah. It's a great perk. I'm going to just start asking for that every time. I don't know. I'm, I'm not really feeling inspired by this story, but I would maybe if I went to Bermuda. It's like, OK, cool. Anya, you're fired. And yeah, at this point, you're kind of like, why? Why is this listed as like a mystery or a crime film? <laughs> no crime has been committed yet except for the crime of making us sit through this boring nonsense. <laughs> not a legal crime. That's just a filmmaking crime. It's an artistic and aesthetic crime. Mm-hmm. So we then cut to uh, the office of one George Martin. Paul McCartney's there strumming a guitar. We meet his very nervous campaign manager who is announcing that he is sending some nerdy-looking lady to go speak to a ladies' club. And we see that just through the the door, Martin is in his own private office where he is talking to an old lady who is begging him not to send her young grandson to uh, truant school. Juvenile (laughs) juvenile court. Now, Kevin, Kevin, you may not know this, and you may not even understand this but george martin doesn't care about looking good george martin cares about doing good he's a he's got a soft spot for the underdog and then betty white barges in and introduces herself and she tells them that she's embedding with them that's usually not how you know it works with reporters you do don't <laughs> i can't just go into that's what, how you met me yeah i just barged into your office Hey, but- I'm, in, I'm embedding with you, see? I'm going to be your shadow, see? Time to write some stories. And I was typing on my typewriter, and you were like, oh, I guess I have to deal with this now. <laughs> I wish I could do this, just show up at the companies I cover and be like, I guess I'm going to be staying here, see? And they'd be like, oh, security. <laughs> and she tells him that he needs her because she's going to help him get the lady, get the lady vote. You know, ladies, you know, they don't. They don't care about politics. They care about dumb shit like kissing babies in the newspaper, you know? And, uh, <laughs> you know, Martin's only only line for the ladies is um, if they vote for him, there will be an end to crooked politics and rackets in the city. <laughs> it's 
not a good, that's not going to, that's not, that's not a line for ladies. Ladies want, I don't even know. This movie doesn't even make it clear what it thinks lady voters want. It's just more of like, it, it's just, it's just bullshit. Well, it makes clear that it doesn't believe that ladies are interested in that anti-corruption shit. Yeah, women want corrupt politics. Women want a racket, you know? They like the bad boys. They like the bad boys. <laughs> no. <laughs> She's, she says pretty strongly, you know, I'm going to take pictures of you and photograph you, and I'm going to profile you every single day on the pages of the Daily News. He kicks her out. Mm. I don't want any of this cheap sensationalism. Hmm. She, she says, well, have it your way. What does she cook up? What what crazy scheme does she unfurl? Well, uh, Miss Betty White unfurls one of the the uh, most classic journalistic <laughs> tricks in the book. She um, has a random lady approach Martin in a store and hand him her baby, as as you know, women do. And then the woman runs away. And a Daily News photographer snaps Martin holding the baby. And then that picture is splashed across the pages of the Daily News to show that he loves babies. So old Betty White got a trick over Mr. George Martin. In fact, that picture was published on the front page. What a story. Under the headline, George Martin, the lover of children. Now, tragically, the day after that was printed, George Martin was actually murdered by a follower of the notorious internet conspiracy theory QAnon, because they thought they were saying that he was a, a pedophile. So it had tragic results, but that's the end of the movie, and it just you know shows you that you need to be a responsible. It journalist. was really prescient that yeah. they, they saw this coming. <laughs> they knew all the way back in the '30s. I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, they knew that a bunch of old people were going to get you know brainworms from being on Facebook too much and and start believing that everybody is a a child molester. But you know, here we are. Brilliant picture in so many respects. <laughs> Only the lighting was better. <laughs> um, yeah, so obviously all the women love this shit. They love babies, and the guy's holding the baby. Ah! So, I mean, so obviously it's a huge hit. And um, now, uh, now we cut to one of the classic comedic scenes in the film. And of course, that's they set up this kind of nerdy, bespectacled lady, you know, and, and she's going around walking back and forth in the office, giving an over-the-top speech. And I'm just sitting here picturing, like, 1930s people must have thought this shit was hilarious. They were watching this gawky lady walk around, give a speech that no one was listening to. And they were just pissing their pants, rolling around the aisles of the theater, cracking up. Because this is what passed for fucking humor back then. Oh, wow. <laughs> a a non-conventionally attractive woman is talking. <laughs> I mean, God, just kill me. This movie... She's basically like uh, Jane Hathaway from the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. Cool reference. <laughs> <laughs> so Betty White slips past this hilarious scene, and uh, then the, dr the Dracula guy, Renfield, calls um, some phony outfit called the Progressive Youth Club, um, but it's really Randall, the bad guy. Meanwhile, Betty White just goes and hangs out at George Martin's office. She's uh, just completely fucking up his ability to produce. She wants him to go talk to a ladies club, and he's against it. He's got to produce uh, Sergeant Pepper. 
He's got, he's a he's got a busy slate. He's in demand. And on top of that, he's a man. What does he have to say to a flock of women? That's what he calls them, a flock of women. Yeah. Oof. But you know what? In fairness, he does have to finish Winds of Winter. So, you know, maybe he should stay away from the ladies for now <laughs> before that uh, blows in. Make up your mind. Oh, Pick fuck a lane. You. I don't have Pick to. Pick a George Martin lane and do, stick in it. I, I can do whatever the fuck I want. This movie doesn't know what it is. I don't know what George Martin I'm talking about. I can do whatever the fuck I want in the spirit of the film. Excuse you. So, um,. Yeah, so White, uh, I mean, and this would seem the kind of a striking speech that White gives considering our political climate, but she reminds Martin gently that women are also human. And just like men, you know, they might care about politics. And honestly, I was thinking, that's true, and if more men actually understood that, this world would be a better place. Women are human too. Did you know that, Kevin? I've heard rumors to that effect. <laughs> You don't have to beware of ladies. We're, we're just like you. <laughs> so now White commits a really egregious journalistic sin because she actually goes and writes the speech that her subject is going to give to the ladies, and he actually goes through with it. How does it go? The fancy dames eat it up. They love it. This young, handsome DA, prospective DA, is coming in to talk to them, and they're all over him. They're pawing at him after the speech. They're acting like he's the fucking Beatles. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Finally, George Martin gets a turn in the spotlight. <laughs> is it as if he'd won the Game of Thrones? It is. That's that's how it works. If you win the Game of Thrones, you get a bunch of 1930 ladies patting you on the back and telling you you're yeah. a deer. I never read those books. So that's the best I could do. I thought you read the Game of Th I thought you read the first one. I, I read the first one and I blacked it out. There's like a dragon in the end of it. There was a dragon on the end of it. Are you saying women are dragons? <laughs> uh, you're pulling your collar and sweating. <laughs> so uh, he asked, Martin mm. loves his attention he's gotten from the skirts. Mm. He says, so was I human? Did I warm him up? Because he loves this attention. She, uh, Betty White says, you were sizzling. She's not so happy that now all these uh, other ladies are paying attention to her pet project. Hmm. You think she'd be pleased that uh, her efforts were being so successful in attracting him the attention of the lady voter? I think, but I think mm. her interest in him may have become more than merely professional. Ooh, spicy! That's not spicy at all. Have you ever given a speech and then a bunch of ladies flirted with you? Yes. When? What speech? Uh, I gave a. Uh, 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 it was a luncheon club speech a, a long time ago, and there's lots of uh, ladies there, and they came up and spoke to me afterwards. What were you were you telling them that you were going to keep their city safe and that you know they should vote for you for DA? I, I was telling them humorous anecdotes from my life. Wait, no, wait. What was the speech though in real life? Were you doing a stand-up bit? Like what was going on? I I I uh, I I I'd been working uh, in, in a, a court in a minor capacity. And so uh, I, I was telling some stories about that experience and I was telling them in such a way as to provoke some merriment. Did you have your thumbs in your suspenders swaying back and forth a bit to show that you were a folksy gentleman? That always, the, the women love that sort of thing. Oh, I, I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> Did, do what, why, were you just warming the crowd up for the judge? 
I'm more than a warm-up act, sister. Oh. I was the main event. Really? Why why did they just... Why why did these women come to see you? They had a luncheon club meeting uh, where the judge spoke. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went with him. And after he spoke, uh, some people came up and talked to him. And I ended up interacting with some people. And they said, well... You're a charming young man. It, so what were so they were, were you overwhelmed by the flirting after your speech? It was a little awkward because uh, I was in my uh, mid twenties, so I was a very young man. Oh, and a young pup. I was a young pup. I was naive, innocent, a bit of a dupe. Yes, didn't know the ways of the world. So nothing's changed. <laughs> Yeah, so there's now some tension between these two, uh, between Betty White and George Martin. And then things get fucking crazy. They see, they look oh, out the window. Yeah, so I forgot about this. Yeah, you forgot about, how upsetting was this? this? This was pretty, this may have been pretty close to the last straw for me for this picture before I started yeah. Googling, like, uh, what to do when you're bored. Or like, how to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. I know, um, yeah, this was pretty upsetting. So they pull over and see a lady being beaten on the street. You know, a fun rom-com. And the reporter tries to intervene and begs the DA candidate to help. But he is like, I know, it's just one of your reporter tricks like that baby. And then she, tra- the, the Betty White gets punched in the face by the combatants. A, a cop intervenes and just drags the people off. And then... She tells him that she doesn't want to go to dinner anymore. And he's like, okay. And then he drives off. And it's like, what the fuck? What did I just watch? And then it gets worse. So we cut into the editor shouting, I'll, I'll ask Betty White! Several times on the fucking phone, just screaming this. Can you imagine working in this newsroom? You'd be like, everyone's just crazy here. Um, and Betty White. He sees that she has a black eye. Yeah. And he just kind of laughs as though I don't. I didn't know he had it in him. <laughs> He's cackling. He's cackling. <laughs> oh my god! He's cackling at the fact that a, a, a his employee may have been injured by a political candidate. A political candidate who he supports vigorously and who believes should hold a position of power in the city. Meanwhile. We go back to Dracula guy. He's kind of harassing the nerdy lady who didn't get to give the speech. And the, basically all you need to know about that is the nerdy lady reveals that she knows that White is actually still married. Uh-oh. And now uh, now Dracula guy has the scoop for Randall. So the bad guys go to Betty's White, Betty White's husband, Earth, Wind, and Fire drummer, Red White. And they um, want to, they bring him down to the office and basically, they're going to get him to uh, file some complaints. File a complaint for alienation of affections, which would basically be a way for them to make public that this allegedly pure candidate, George Martin, is running around with another fellow's wife. Is that still on the books? Like, Can you still do that? I have never looked it up, but I've never heard of anyone using it. No, I haven't either. So... Um, now we have uh, 
a very, and then we also in the middle of this, we have a very awkward shot of John Williams leaving the office, and it's just bizarre. This is a whole like bizarre like sequence where the, do you want a key? Okay, I'll have the key. The key lets you go in through the back way. Okay, then no one will see you. Okay, thanks for letting me know. And then we just have to watch him walk down this hallway and leave. It's like why was this left in the film? <laughs> Well, I know why, because we have this back doorway comes in handy later, but it's it's very stupid. It's a stupid way of introducing that. Um, Is this when we get like another really bad headline in the paper? Yeah. Oh, and I'll say Fred White pushed back at first. He said he didn't want to do it, but then they offered they they blackmailed him or something. The headline that Kevin mentioned is Martin Stan Martin starts campaign in earnest. Wow. What a story. <sighs> Stop the presses. Jesus. I, I mean, like, if you're going to do kind of like a sleazy journalism movie, at least get it some hot headline action. Oh. Hot headline action. Mm. Hot and heavy and 30 points. Giving good headlines. <laughs> what the fuck are we doing with our lives? <laughs> I would say, oh, then we're talking about sweeping reforms, part of his platform. Martin gains in popularity. It's all just like fluff stuff. Uh, then uh, Betty catches him in a compromising position. He's just lying down, right? So for that, this movie, that's like a compromising hot scene. <laughs> then he wakes up, freaks out, grabs her. Then they kiss, and it, they're apologizing to each other. Just, yeah, this is just tedious. He he uh he basically says that his nerves were frazzled, so she uh goes home. Oh no, she tells him to go up to his like family lodge or something in the country to relax. So he does that. She goes home and is clacking away on the typewriter like any good reporter. And um, she's sharing the same bed as, I don't know whether it's supposed to be her best friend as her sister, but that's kind of funny. <laughs> you have such a dirty mind. I think you were just desperate for something interesting to happen. I really was. I was like, oh, is, the, is, is she actually a lesbian? Would that be a cool twist? Nah, we don't get anything. And then some, okay, here's where we get a fun. So somebody calls Betty White. What what happens from there, Kevin? What do we see as the audience? What's happening? You want me to? <laughs> <laughs> tell tell, okay, okay, tell okay, what okay, we okay, saw. Okay, okay. So Betty White receives a hurried late night call from someone. First, we weren't sure who it was. We had to like stop the film, go to IMDb. Do some sleuthing. But it, it, it's the chauffeur of uh, Martin saying that it's terribly important that she comes up to the lodge pronto. And then we zoom back and we find out that there is a person standing behind him. Can you tell us about that? You want me to talk about that? It's your note. It's my note. So there is something jutting out of this guy's pants. It's like you can see... <laughs> it looks like a boner, but it was actually a gun. <laughs> but when you when you pause the film to try to figure out what the fuck is happening, it looks like Martin's chauffeur is calling her, and there's some guy, Swanson, I believe. Is it Swanson? Or it's one of the goons. I uh, who cares? It's one of the goons standing with this big bump in his pants, bump in his coat, and smiling deliriously behind the guy. It's like, what is happening? But anyways, I think what we're supposed to take from this is that he's being 
coerced to make this call at gunpoint. Betty White goes running while she's all complaining. I'm not going to go up there. But then we cut to her immediately going up there. There's ridiculous swooning music playing as she shows up and uh, they talk for a while. And then another weird scene happens. Want to talk about that, Kevin? So she goes to the lodge where Martin is. I just sound dead inside, don't I? Keep going. (laughs) She goes to the lodge where Martin is and they do a little bit of bantering. And then they embrace. And in that moment, there was a bright light. And they realize that a man standing outside the window has taken a flash picture of them. And this photographer, after he takes his picture, he smiles like the Cheshire cat and then runs off. So, uh uh-oh. Everybody's going to find out about this illicit affair. Except Martin doesn't even know it's an illicit affair. He didn't even know at this point that she's married. He he says something to the effect of like that was weird, <laughs> and then she goes running off. She gets mad at him because he's not like trying to figure out what's going on, and she's all asking him, "Did your chauffeur send for me?" And then he's like, "Huh?" And then he finds the chauffeur bound and gagged, which doesn't even make any sense because what did the people force the chauffeur to call Betty White at the lodge? Like, like why didn't he hear what was going on? Then uh, he's like, I know what happened, but of course it's too late. Betty White is gone. So the public, the, the, the public, the private investigators who are like trying to get dirt on him, they know they're supposed to turn it over to Williams, but they think they can make a little uh, bit of scratch off it. First. Yeah, they don't want to. They don't want to give that dirt to him for a song. are we doing <laughs> so they want to blackmail martin's first to get a little bit of cash so martin gets <laughs> jesus so martin gets a letter from earth wind and fire drummer freddie white saying that he freddie white is considering suing martin for stealing his girl and Basically, Martin is really upset, and he kind of snaps at Betty White, saying he didn't even know she was married, and she really wants to handle it, but he's kind of like, you're not good at solving problems. You're only good at creating them, so they're all snippy. Betty White shows up at her ex's place and yells at him. He, he kind of is like, well, the guys went looking for me. They blackmailed me, and she's all like, if you fuck with Martin, I'm going to make sure you go to jail. Fred go- goes back to... The goons, the bad guys, the private detectives who are saying things at this point like, shut up, slap happy. I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. And they tell him to sit down and they're saying, we told you to leave town. What are you doing? And so he said he changed his mind. He didn't want to help them anymore, ruin his ex's life. And they kind of immediately just kind of like punch him and drag him off. (laughs) And that's all you see of him for now. Meanwhile, George Martin and Betty White are in the same building and they're downstairs and they and she's begging him not to go up to the legal offices of whatever the hell the lawyers are called in this. But, you know, Randall's office. And he's saying he has to. He wants to sort all this out and figure it out. And then we get it up to the we go back to the legal offices and some guy named Tony is getting a formal reprimand from his boss. 
uh, and getting punched <laughs> around because he did something bad. He he got he, he was a little too quick trigger happy and something went wrong. So you know immediately that Fred is dead. <laughs> we thought we think. I think he, he did die. He did he? die. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Spoiler. So then Martin asks, well, how much do you guys want? And then they say, we want $10,000. And then Martin punches Randall because you were insulting a young lady. I'm, I'm a little confused at this point. Betty White and um, Martin are both going to see Randall. And, and she asks, you know, like, where's where's Freddie? Like, what what what'd you guys do with him? And he says, oh, we know he never showed up here. So Martin cites a bunch of legal bullshit saying he's going to make everybody sign stuff and, like, you know, make sure this is all NDA. And this whole thing kind of, like, flies in the face of him being, like, a respectable public servant because you just think he wouldn't, like, if he was so cared, if he was so cared so much about this stuff, you'd think he just wouldn't um, go along with blackmailers. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. But then you find out that he has a plan. George and Betty are going to lurk around the office floor <laughs> where they shot this film. I'm sure they shot every scene in the goddamn film. Like, and they're basically now like they've run out of room. So now they're just lurk. They're forced to lurk around the elevator. Well, you know, um, area. And they see John Williams, noted film composer, sneaking in the back door of this sketchy law office. Williams walks in sees a lazy secretary with his head on the desk, calls him a deadhead, shoves him around because he wants him to call Randall, and then the guy drops to the floor. He's dead, and he's also Fred. Fred <laughs> is dead. There's nothing Fred. more to be said. I wish I'd never even gotten out of bed. Don't lose your head. So then people are just naming names. Walter Waters and Johnson, Williams and Randall, people are just saying things like this. Like it's we're we're like an hour in and people are just saying Waters and Johnson, Williams and Randall, like we're supposed to know who the fuck is who. It's this movie, too many people, too many names, too much bullshit. It's just it's too much. And I even see you have it in your notes here. Kevin stopped caring at this point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what made you stop caring, Kevin? I was just tired of having to stop the movie every few minutes to try to look up cast on IMDb. Uh, the story didn't make sense. I wasn't invested in the characters. Uh, the script was terrible. The acting was poor. The production values left a lot to be desired. Everything seemed to be happening in the same room. <laughs> it's like a play. I feel like... This movie could have been mediocre but not awful had they gotten just some of the basics of filmmaking right, like having different kind of sets to show different places and maybe maybe even something simple like trying to dress people a little bit differently. I don't know. Like the, the, there, was, there were a few like little tweaks that wouldn't have made it a great movie, wouldn't have made it a good movie, but would have made it like, okay, I'm following what's going on. I understand what's happening here. And there are movies you can watch, like maybe some of the Sherlock Holmes movies with uh, Rathbone and Bruce, that certainly are not good movies by any stretch of the imagination. But you're not bored; they're kind of fun. And yeah. there, there was there was nothing fun about this. So, Williams, meanwhile, in the meantime, finds that there was nothing good about his deal with this sketchy law firm because he finds a photo of the reporter and his rival kissing, and realizes it's a double cross. So he's going to take the photo 
and to go expose Martin to the press and he's not going to let them blackmail him. And um, Martin gets into the back room and also sees Freddie lying on the ground. He won't let Betty White come in to see her dead husband, but then eventually she figures it out because she sees Freddie's cane and she uh, and he's like, oh, sorry. Anyway, then Martin says he's going to phone the police. But then things get crazy. Martin gets caught sneaking around when the uh, bad guys come in to throw Freddie's body in the rubbish bin in the basement, which, you know, like it's 1930. If they'd done that, they probably would have gotten away with this murder. Yeah investigative techniques back then being what they were. Um, and Betty White runs away after he yells for her to run, but she gets grabbed as she runs towards the Art Deco elevators. Which gives them an idea. Mm, they're going to toss them down the elevator chute. Give them the old shaft rooney That's exactly what they said. <laughs> Just sparkling dialogue. So then after that, we're treated to uh, a fight scene where people are fighting and swinging punches really awkwardly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's how actual fights, though, look, though. Like, they're never as cool as they... The reason you want, like, movie fights is because they're choreographed well. So this was... This felt more realistic, but it was super boring to watch. Because also, you can't even follow who's who. It's a bunch of white dudes in suits and hats all flailing and you don't even know who you're supposed to be rooting for because everyone looks the same. And then periodically a couple of guys taking awkward punches at each other uh, end up near the open elevator shaft and we're supposed to be, oh no, is he? Is one of them going to push the other one down? You don't even know who is who or what to... And it's like all dramatic and then somebody <laughs> falls down and like, I guess that was the bad guy. <laughs> And of course, one of the bad guys does get thrown down the elevator. Somebody gets punched through a door. <laughs> and then a bunch of cops. I, I don't even know exactly how the cops got called throughout this. But... No, see, I, I, that, I know. Oh, you're the expert here. I guess one of us was paying attention, oh, Miss Kane. I'm sorry. So one of the people, as you said, got thrown through a glass door. They then panned down to a bit of the glass that wasn't broken. And there was a little sign on it saying that it was protected by a security system. And so then we cut to the security company where like an alarm bell is going off. And so that is how the police got notified. We didn't know it at the time, but this was actually all early branded content for ADT. Yes, the ADT Chronicles. There you go. Classic. And... Uh, the the lawyer, you know, at some point saves the lady reporter from being thrown down the elevator shaft. He doesn't want her to get the shaft, basically. <laughs> but the bad guys do get shafted because some one of them is thrown down the elevator and then the others are captured when the police show up. A cop gets shot. A bad guy gets shot. Williams gets grabbed. John Williams's reign of terror is finally over. And George Martin's about to toot his own horn. <laughs> no, because uh, Betty White is going to be tooting his horn in the future. We start seeing some pretty laudatory headlines. And she gives the, the same old song and dance praising him. George Martin elected. 
John Williams indicted an extortion racket. John Williams faces the music. John Williams, the racket swan song. No, I, I made those last two up because I wanted to do sw- song puns because of all the musical themes. But there you go. Williams gets thrown in jail. Martin wouldn't. Uh, Martin is alleged. You know, in, in the newspaper they say Martin prosecutes Williams. Now, I, and I, I believe Williams was the crime boss who owned the DA. He was not the DA himself. But considering that John Williams held him at gunpoint and was going to have him thrown down an elevator chute as DA, would Martin not have to recuse himself and even perhaps send the trial out of town? I think the sensible thing to do would have been to send the trial out of town or take a plea bargain because the case against Williams was pretty fucking strong. So why, why, what was he hoping for with the trial? What would it, what would a plea bargain have looked like? Do you think in this case, uh, you know, you charge him with a bunch of counts of murder and attempted murder. And you say, if you plea, we won't charge you with all of those accounts and we'll give you a slightly smaller sentence and maybe put you in a minimum security prison where you'd be treated a little bit better. Mm-hmm. There you go. So the trial itself is a sign that perhaps George Martin is not the DA that everyone should have been so excited for. He's not the prince who was promised. That's a that's a that's a George R. R. Martin joke for you. I didn't get it. I'm trying. I'm really. You should trying. just let it be. Salute you. <laughs> Uh, the editor ends up happy in the final scene because he doesn't have to pay for the lady's vacation. Why not? She's going on a honeymoon with her new hub. It's Betty White and George Martin, power couple for the ages. And they're going on a trip. They've got a ticket to ride. Well, Anya, we have been on a long and winding road with this movie. Can you cut to the chase and tell us what you think? I might need some help. <laughs> Because this has been a hard day's night, Kevin, (laughs) watching this movie. I think I'm going to be sad. I think it's today. (laughs) (laughs) From this lady's perspective, I thought this was pretty harmless, and it might have had a few charms had it been better written and better done altogether. But I'd say that most viewers with taste should probably beware of beware of ladies. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore to underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O. Thanks, Thanks so, so much, much for, for listening. listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented... They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.